looks like science fiction has led the way again. But who would have thought in 1966 that the colorful psychedelic film Fantastic Voyage was prophetic, describing future medical science? We can reduce anything down any size we want. People, ships, tanks, planes. We can shrink an army with all its equipment, put in a bottle cap. In the film, a miniaturized submarine cruises through a human bloodstream on a mission to clear out an arterial blockage. The journey is wild and far-fetched, but it may not be so different from what a new fleet of medical devices could do. Are nanobots the future of surgery? Do we want them to be? You may change your mind when you hear what novel invaders have already taken up residence inside us. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, why our history of going inside the body may have begun with cavemen, the evidence of a world smothered in plastic turns up in human blood, and what it will take to implement a new generation of microsurgeons for their medical missions. This episode is Fantasticer Voyage. The 1966 movie, Fantastic Voyage, begins with a title card whose words prepare the audience for a profound realization about what might be possible. This film will take you where no one has ever been before. No eyewitness has actually seen what you are about to see. But in this world of ours, where going to the moon will soon be upon us, and where the most incredible things are happening all around us, someday, perhaps tomorrow, the fantastic events you are about to see can and will take place. Going to the moon? Check. Incredible things happening all around us? Check. Traveling inside the human body in a miniature sub? Well, we're coming to that. But the film did make a lasting impression. Seth, do you remember our group discussions about producing an episode about a trip inside the human body? I certainly do. And I also remember how we reacted, at least you and I. We said, that's like the movie Fantastic Voyage. That's right, except for Shannon and Brian. What did they reference? It was some children's show from the 1990s, The Magic School Bus. (laughs) That's right. That went right over my head. Yeah. Well, anyway, the point is, the idea of going inside the body has long fueled our imaginations. In the case of Fantastic Voyage, a submarine crew and their ship are shrunk to microscopic size to repair a blood clot in a scientist's brain. And, you know, we found this prescience of the film startling, uh, but also instructive in helping us picture what a journey through our bodies would be like. Cruising the bloodstream? Dodging white blood cells, navigating the chambers of the heart, or getting inside your head. Well, the only way we can reach that clot is from inside the brain. So we've decided to put a surgical team and crew into a submarine, reduce it way down in size, and inject it into an artery. You mean I'm going along? As part of the crew, yes. Wait a minute. They can't shrink me. Our miniaturizer can shrink anything. Sounds invasive, and it is. But we have been trying to enter the body for longer than you think. Evidence suggests that brain surgery, for example, was performed in the Stone Age. Uh, The earliest interventions were done by cave people who uh, practiced trephination, which was operations on the skull. Ira Rutgo is a surgeon, medical historian, and the author of The Empire of the Scalpel, The History 
of surgery. So before we consider micro-sized surgeons, he helps us understand how surgery evolved, beginning when humans first grabbed a sharp rock and sliced into a skull, to modern-day mastery of the scalpel. Ira, the Stone Age surgeons, if you will, practiced trepanning, as you said. And what they did was cut holes in skulls. Could that actually have benefited any of the people who underwent that kind of surgery? It sounds like it's no more beneficial than a hole in the head, but it is a hole in the head. So it, it is a hole in the head, but let's picture exactly what was going on. So you might have had an individual who was clubbed on the head and had a skull fracture, or they might have even had a mental illness. You know, whatever the reason was, the, the shaman was about to do an operation on that individual. They would take a flint or a stone and make um, grooves in the skull, intersecting grooves, and they would lift out the uh, fragment of skull in the middle of the grooves. Now, did this work 100% of the time? We obviously don't know because there's no eyewitness accounts. But certainly, it must have been amazing to believe that there were um, individuals who were comatose from a blow to the head. Let's say they had a, uh, a blood clot on the brain. The shaman operated on him and brought that individual back to life. I mean, I, th I think there's actually some evidence that it must have worked in some cases because aren't the edges of uh, where they cut the hole, you know, the edges of the hole, uh, had healed a bit, so shows that the, the patient lived. Absolutely. In fact, what happens when you have suffer a skull fracture, there are jagged edges to the skull fracture because it's fresh bone that's been broken. But what's been seen in these skulls that have been discovered that are 10,000 years old, that the edges around some of these um, repaired skulls had smoothness to them, which then meant that the skull and that the bone was healing, that it was growing, and that the jagged edges were disappearing. You know, in, in an age where there are all these antibiotics and you know, treatments for viruses and, you know, change your diet or whatever, there are all sorts of uh, treatments that we have, but there still seems to be some area of medicine that can only be treated by surgery. Maybe you could sort of give me an example or two of why that is. Well, certainly, you know, if you define um, a surgeon as one who practices the art of healing by manual operation, there are things within the body that only can be taken care of by a surgical operation. Appendicitis. You might try and treat it initially with an antibiotic, but over the time, if the antibiotic doesn't work, the appendix has to be removed. Tumors have to be removed. So there are many things within the body that need intervention, that need the surgeon's scalpel to go in there and to remove it. It's as simple as all that. Is that going to stay the case? I mean, I have to say, a couple of years ago, I was giving a talk to a bunch of surgeons. I think they were plastic surgeons, but whatever. In order to be provocative during the dinner, I said, look, you know, all these things that you're worried about now, uh, removing tumors and so forth, I mean, we'll, we'll fix that at a molecular level within the next 50 years, and uh, surgeons will just, you know, be an historical artifact. And I remember the, the guy next to me put down his knife and fork and he said, yes, but there's always trauma. There's always Highway 101. And, and that, that just struck me. <laughs> and, and that's all true. We have higher rates of trauma and accidents in the United States than ever. It's one of the leading causes of death. So, yes, you're correct. 
There has been a major transformation in surgery over the last, I would say, three decades, 30 years, meaning that we now have same-day surgery, we're using smaller incisions, patients go home the same day, if not only one or two days later, they're back to work or doing whatever they need to do within a matter of a couple of days, if not a couple of weeks. So that has transformed surgery. So surgery itself is certainly less, if that's the correct word, less than what it used to be, but the need for surgery still exists. Yeah, you don't see that stopping. I don't see that stopping either, but uh, I, I just sort of wondered. Well, your book emphasizes that modern surgery, which I believe you date to roughly the 1930s, required four major science advances to really become the highly regarded and useful treatment it is today. Maybe you can tell us those four you know, steps that science needed to make before you could have the kind of surgery that we have today where the results well, are mostly positive. It, it's a very simple answer. To be able to do an operation, a safe and effective operation, you need four elements. The surgeon needs four elements. The first is an understanding of human anatomy. You need to have a roadmap. You need to know where you're going. Second is you have to be able to control bleeding because if you're operating on somebody and you know the roadmap, but the blood is flooding the pathway, you still don't know where you're going. Third is anesthesia. The patient can't be writhing on the table and moving around all over the place. They need to be able to have a pain-free experience. Fourth is antisepsis. And antisepsis is, in terms of, probably the most important thing because you can't do an operation and have infections. So let's just go over the numbers or the years real fast. Anatomy and stopping bleeding were sort of known about by the 16th century. However, however, and this is the key thing, for another 300 plus years, we had no anesthesia or no antisepsis. Anesthesia came about in the mid 19th century and antisepsis occurred or was accepted, let's say, by the 1890s. So really not until the 1890s were the four elements in play. And once they were in play, you need another two or three decades to um, get to where you would call it modern and modernity took over. So we're really looking at surgery, at least in my mind, as a modern thing which occurred maybe 100, 110 years ago. That's all. Was there any class of surgery that suddenly uh, bloomed, if you will, because of the fact that we didn't have these roadblocks anymore. Well, class is a very large term in the world of surgery, but yes. And the answer was that prior to the, the development of the four, what I call elemental foundations, they could never operate on the abdomen or on the chest. So the first, I, I, don't, I don't like the word major operation and minor operation. To me, all operations are major. But having said that, the first operation that came about after the four elements were uh, accepted, appendectomies for appendicitis. And there was a huge amount of um, appendices that were taken out, certainly in the tw by the 1920s and the 1930s. It became the most common operation in America. You know, the invention of uh, anesthesia if you will. I, I guess it was as much a discovery as an invention. But in any case, when they were using laughing gas or whatever, what would it have been like to be on the table for a surgeon, say, in 1800 before we had any anesthesia? It was obviously a very scary experience. And we have to be very careful 
when we talk about surgery, we always talk about surgery as you and I know it in 2022. Now we're talking about surgery in 1800. To begin with, there were not nearly as many surgical operations being done for any number of reasons. Pain, um, people would die after an operation because they would get an infection and sepsis. So it was a horrible experience. Patients had to be held down. They would need two and three people to hold their limbs while they're getting operated on. Most of the operations before these four elements were really um, operations on things that you could see on the body, uh, tumors, a breast tumor, uh, an amputation of a limb, amputation of a finger. It was things that an individual, in this case the surgeon, could see. Those were the operations that were being done. All this, of course, with the patient writhing on the table from the pain of the scalpel. Yeah, that, that, that's amazing. I mean, when you talk about how 130 years ago, somebody operating on you didn't even feel any obligation to wash their hands no, before they- No, absolutely. I mean, there's a very famous story. I can, tell, I can explain the story about James Garfield, the president of the United States. So the president of the United States is assassinated. He, he was president in 1881. It's when he was inaugurated in March. So in July, he is assassinated. He's shot in the back. So let me frame this picture to you. So he's lying in a train station with a bullet in his back. What happens? Well, this is the president of the United States. They immediately call surgeons. Surgeons have to be called. So you have to picture this now. The surgeons come riding on horseback or they come riding on a cart. The reins of the horse, the reins from the cart have all been on the ground. The surgeons picks up the reins. What's all over the ground in the 1880s? It's nothing but horse manure and human manure. So it's all over this gentleman's hand. So the first surgeon comes in. He has manure over his hands. He doesn't understand what that means. He takes his finger and sticks it down the bullet hole of the president. Why? He wants to see if he can feel the bullet. Uh, don't forget, there were no x-rays yet. So he's now introduced every possible bad germ in the world into that back wound and then just take it for another 80 days and this is the reason why the president of the united states had multiple abscesses and eventually died from sepsis all this from a bullet wound that ended up at autopsy to be nothing more than a bullet lodged in a muscle in his back he didn't have to die no but as you point out that that, that kind of statement could be made 100 years from now about many of the diseases that kill us. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. Ira Rutkow, thanks so very much for speaking with us. No, it's my pleasure, and I appreciate the invitation. I enjoyed the conversation. Ira Rutkow is a surgeon, a medical historian, and the author of The Empire of the Scalpel, The History of Surgery. Surgeons are not the only ones making incursions into bodies. We now have evidence that man-made invaders are too. So we're talking about plastic particles that are generally smaller than five millimeter, but uh, most often, you know, they're much smaller than that. Next, how our plastic flooded world is showing up in our bloodstream. What we find when we enter a fantastical voyage in this episode of Big Picture Science.
Once you toss your plastic grocery bag or the foam tray, which is also plastic, that held those supermarket chicken thighs, well, they may be out of sight, but your relationship with them lives on. Even if you cut open a plastic bag in your kitchen or whatever, millions of plastic particles will be released in the air. So it's in fact everywhere, these plastic particles. Plastic pollution is one of our most pressing environmental issues. Fish and birds get tangled in plastic litter. Indian elephants have been seen consuming plastic utensils in landfills. But ecotoxicologist Dick Fetak is referring to a plastic menace on a different scale, microplastics. We've found microplastics, that is polymers measuring less than about a fifth of an inch, in the bodies of marine organisms. And as we are putting this episode together, scientists discovered microplastics in newly fallen Antarctic snow for the first time. The Freie Universität Amsterdam professor has long suspected where this was going. What about humans? That's the main reason why we target the blood, human blood. Dick Fetak and his team have, for the first time, detected microplastics in human blood. They identified four everyday plastics in 17 out of 22 healthy blood donors. The study was small, but Dr. Fetak says the results signal a sizable emerging crisis. So it seems we have achieved the successful miniaturization of some man-made objects to a size that permits them to enter the human body. Not how it was done in the movie Fantastic Voyage with zapping technology that shrank the atoms of the submarine. Instead, the sun's ultraviolet radiation and the abrasion of wind and water broke things down for us. And, of course, it was an accidental miniaturization, not something we would have wished for. Micro-sized plastic particles you can actually see with the naked eye, but most of it, it's, it's invisible. So we're talking about plastic particles that are generally smaller than 5 millimeter, but uh, m- most often, you know, they're much smaller than that. Let's say one micrometer, you can compare that with a human blood cell, for example, which is about seven, eight uh, micrometer. Dr. Michaels, the channel is getting awfully narrow. Yes, we're entering a capillary. The wall's transparent. It's less than one ten thousandth of an inch thick and porous. You mind letting me in on what's going on out there? Oh, it's uh, just a simple exchange, Mr. Grant. Corpuscles releasing carbon dioxide in return for oxygen coming through on the other side. Oxygenation. So now, mixed in the plasma of our blood, along with red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets, are microplastics. Here are the four common polymers Dr. Fethock found. Polystyrene, used in food packaging and disposable cutlery. Polyethylene which makes those supermarket bags, polyethylene terephthalate, or PET, used for soda and water bottles, and PMMA, polymethyl methacrylate, a transparent plastic used in smartphone screens and dental implants. Studies have shown that plastic can be harmful to human cells. But what are the health consequences of microplastics coursing through our bloodstream and potentially lodging in our organs? Dr. Fetak says we don't yet know. But remember, pieces of plastic don't decompose. They just get smaller. It fragmentates in smaller particles, but it doesn't decompose into its original elements. So fragmentation means that any plastic item, whether it's in debris or it's in your house or your furniture or whatever, 
principle can generate micro nanoplastics. This is kind of a, a naive question, but I'm going to go forward with it. If I drink from a plastic bottle or a plastic cup, I don't taste or feel like parts of the bottle are disintegrating in my mouth. I don't feel these plastic particles <laughs> in my mouth. No, but uh, I think you have to put that in a broader perspective. Uh, we, I mean, we live in a, in a, a multi-particle world, so you breathe in and you eat all the time, uh, drink also all the time particles. I can't see any difference with plastic particles. This is something that happens all the time. I wonder if you could describe for us the route that these particles take from our inhalation or our ingestion and how they get into the bloodstream. So if you could just give us a picture, what does the journey look like? So if you look at the lung, you inhale them, you can see that most of these plastic particles will end up in the mucus layer and you will cuff them up. And you you probably will ingest them, you know, you will swallow them. The very small ones are the ones that are capable to penetrate very deeply inside the lungs. And there they can cross the, the, the lung blood barrier, sorry, in fact, enter your circulation. So that, that is one pathway. The other pathway is via the ingestion. So you swallow these particles with food or you drink them. Uh, they end up in your intestine. And only a very small fraction of the smaller particles is capable of, of crossing these epithelium barriers. They're so small, they have no problem doing that. And that's how they pass into the bloodstream? Yes, the very small ones can do that. But what does your finding that these microplastics are ending up in our bloodstream, how does it change the story? The, the key thing is they are present in our body and they should not be in our blood. That is one thing. And the other thing is we would like to know what are these particles doing there? You know, Are they excreted via the urine or the bile? Or are perhaps is a fraction accumulating in certain organs? Like can they, for example, take the blood-brain barrier? This is all about exposure, and we have to understand whether they accumulate in certain organs and may reach levels, levels where they can cause harm. We don't know exactly, you know, it is it is a very understudied uh, subject yet. I'm very happy that, at least in Europe, and I think also in the US and Australia, uh, we started now to look into this uh, microplastic, nanoplastic human health issue, you know, with a couple of big research projects. There's another question that you raised, which is a big one, and it went by kind of fast, but it's an important one, and that's whether or not these microplastics are getting past the blood-brain barrier. And could you explain just a very brief definition of the blood-brain barrier, why it's important, whether or not these microplastics are breaching it? Why it's important? Well, one of the organs most important we defend is, is the brain, of course. That's why we have this blood-brain barrier. It's, it's protecting us from all these influences. And But we know that chemicals and uh, small particles, the very small particles, non-sized particles, that actually can do cross the blood-brain barrier and accumulate in, in human brains. And we know that, for example, from black carbon or soup particles coming from for example, from combustion processes or traffic. So there's evidence from that. And particle toxicity can cause oxidative stress, uh, chronic inflammation, and that, that can be the onset of a whole range of chronic diseases. Well, finally, Dick, you have said that this is a pioneering study and there are still a lot of questions that need to be answered and more studies are needed. But 
Plastics are ubiquitous, and microplastics have been found everywhere from the top of Mount Everest, I believe, to the bottom of the ocean. So given our reliance on plastic, what is the solution to that? I mean, I know that we need more study to understand how this might be affecting our bodies, but how do we stop this? <laughs> or how do we get these plastics out of our bodies? That's a good question. One point I would like to make is you have to put our findings you have to put it into the uh, into the context perspective of the future, okay? We know that these levels of plastic particles in the environment will only continue to rise in the coming decades. And so will our exposure. Why do we know that? Like I said, you know, plastic does not decompose to any significant extent. And the huge amount of plastic waste and plastic products already present in the environment will just continue over time to produce micro-nanoplastics, constantly raising the particle levels. So I'm not even talking about increasing plastic production and waste still to come, you know. Just on basis of what there is in the environment, you can expect the levels of these plastic particles to continue to rise in the coming decades. And this is a scenario you have to take into account. And maybe that will change your mind. And I think, yeah, for the solution side. Uh, but l- let me follow up just on that for a second. You said maybe that'll change your mind. Change your mind about, about what? Well, that we're dealing here with uh, an emerging, uh, potentially serious a group of diverse and highly complex contaminants. That the research, you know, of this class of particles is so very complex and will, will take will take years before we really end up with, a, let's say, an adequate risk assessment. I see. So it's, in that way, it's sort of like carbon dioxide. We've done the damage and we will reap the results of that for decades to come, even if we stop injecting CO2 now. Exactly. And and the thing is, you know, uh, of course, you, you know, all these things, you, we should stop to use all these, these plastics. Uh, you, many of these plastics are not really needed. They have not really a purpose, you know. So reduce the amount of plastic in the system is one thing. And the other thing is, of course, we need to identify the ugly and, and the bad plastics and separate them from the good plastics. And then replace them with, uh, with circular uh, safe plastics or safe materials. And I think that is a big job. That transition is, is not happening uh, fast enough now. You know, you, of course, there are a lot of initiative here, but how much time do we still have? And you can see everything goes so slow. Dick Vethock, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this important and, and disturbing finding of microplastics in our blood. You're welcome. Dick Fethock is an emeritus professor of ecotoxicology, water quality, and health at the Freie Universiteit Amsterdam in the Netherlands. A link to his study is on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Well, Seth, I just found this such a shocking subject, the idea that microplastics are in our blood, consequences to living in a disposable world. Uh, we throw out this plastic, so it's not we're not really disposing of it, or if we are disposing of it, we're eventually, we're disposing of it in our own bodies. The plastic doesn't, you know, self-destruct. It just gets, in, you know, grounded to smaller and smaller particles. So this is a system where there's a non-ending and everlasting source, but no sink for these plastics. So whatever trouble they're causing or going to cause, it's only going to get worse. 
You know, there was another news story that broke while we were putting together this episode. I think we mentioned a couple news stories earlier. After we spoke with Dr. Fetok, the EPA announced that they will be adding legal protections against what are called forever chemicals. And they say that even tiny amounts of these chemicals in drinking water pose health risks. And you know, Seth, while the polymers that Dr. Fetak found in our bloodstream are a newer phenomenon, they aren't the same as these kinds of chemicals, it's hard not to see the parallel between the two substances because like plastics, forever chemicals don't degrade over time. So I, I think we ought to turn that into an advantage by making things that do self-destruct, make non-forever chemicals. We can do non-forever plastics. You know, the bottle that you got your water in, for example, instead of lasting forever, if within five years it self-destructs, well, that's that eases the problem considerably in my mind. What, what do you mean by it self-destructs? And is that something based on science or is that something based on science fiction? That, no. that kind of sounds like science fiction. No, but science fiction is, I mean, if you're going to define science fiction as anything we haven't developed yet, then it's science fiction. But it's certainly not impossible. And in fact, it has been done in certain circumstances to make you know, materials that self-destruct, right? That eventually turn into powder or they turn into a different kind of chemical or they just you know, dissipate in some way. So that, that to me sounds like the, the answer here. It's not that we're gonna be using fewer materials in the future, but what we need are materials that don't accumulate and cause problems. What if the answer were using fewer materials. Recycling, there's an old idea uh, well, yes. that we could bring into I mean, this. I mean, we don't need to buy a new bottle every time we want some water. We can, you know, there was, there was, a, there was someone I worked with once, this is a long time ago, that brought his lunch in a plastic bag and used the same plastic bag, I think it was a, a cookie bag, used the same plastic bag for his lunch for years. He didn't use a plastic bag and then throw it out and then get another one for his lunch the next day. He used the same yeah. one for years because it's a durable material. And we act as though it's something that it's disposable, as we were saying. So that was his equivalent of the old time lunch pail, which was certainly durable too, made out of steel. And you could use it for years and years and years. A new toxic menace is showing up in our bodies. Maybe it's time to summon a fleet of helpful invaders to chase them down. So after you swallow it, it can be quickly deployed in your body. And after the surgery in a couple hours, then it can be quickly removed. The doctor is in your bloodstream, or soon maybe, as many robot surgeons take us on a fantastical voyage on Big Picture Science. In Fantastic Voyage, a miniaturized submarine and its crew of diminutive scientists has to face off against a blood clot in a man's brain. Can they navigate to the injury site and remove the blockage with a laser? Phase one calls for miniaturizing a submarine with crew and surgical team 
and injecting it into the carotid artery. How small will it be? About the size of a microbe. Once in the carotid artery, we remain within the arterial system until we reach the point of the damage, where Dr. Duval will attempt to dissolve the clot with a laser beam. It ends well for the patient. The tiny scientists remove the arterial blockage and escape through a tear duct before they return to normal size. So we have a small man-made vessel set on a mission to vanquish an internal blockage. Is science fiction now entering the bloodstream of medical reality? Yeah, my name is Li Zhang. Currently, I'm a professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and my expertise is micro and nanorobotics. His tiny robots are designed to deploy inside the body. Of course, we primed your imagination to picture the sleek, steely submarine named Proteus that scientists of Fantastic Voyage used to cruise human arteries. Well, Dr. Zhang's robot is different, although it is protean. It's pliable, and it can shapeshift. That's because it's a blob of slime, a moving magnetic blob of slime. It's very much like, you know, when we were kids, we play with this magnet. You know, you have some kind of iron or something like that. You put a permanent magnet underneath of it, you know, then you can do very quick navigation. With use of a magnet, Dr. Zhang envisions his hydrogel robot navigating the twists and turns of your 22-foot small intestine more easily than a tethered endoscope. The slime moves through you and could be directed to remove blockages. The magnetic particles in the slime robot are toxic, and the robot itself is not yet ready for deployment in humans. And it isn't designed to remove those microplastics we heard about. Yet it's not the only miniaturized robot on the horizon. Medical microbots in all shapes may be the future of surgery. But if we can get comfortable with the idea of ingesting a blob of robotic slime, well, we're ready for almost any micro-medical fantastic voyage. So after you swallow it, you know, it will not, you know, uh, damage or, or make some injury, you know, of your body tissue. And then the size, you know, of this device need to be around a centimeter or even millimeter scale, need to be small. So this is a bit of material. I mean, I can imagine this like a, a bit of, I don't know, Play-Doh, which is, you know, uh, uh, you know, with the consistency of play, but it's very small and it's magnetic. In other words, you could move it around the body by just moving magnets around the stomach of somebody, for example. Yes, yes. So, so basically, this slimy material has another interesting property that it can be remotely uh, actuated by using a magnet. So, you know, this material sometimes behave like liquid. It's very soft and it can have a very good adaptability to the environment. And on the other hand, you know, it can also, you know, sometimes it behave like solid. That means, you know, when you apply the magnetic field, you know, you can do the extension. You can also, you know, rotate your magnet. Then, you know, basically the extended part of this uh, slime robot will behave like an arm of an octopus. So it can uh, wrap up and, you know, grab something. So basically, we want to do remote actuation and let it behave like a robot hand. I, yeah, under I, control of a surgeon, something like that. Okay, so getting this into the body, I mean, you would just do that orally, I would assume. It's sort of like having you swallow a piece of chewed gum. I don't know, something like that. I mean, this is very small, right? So how, how does that work? Yes. Uh, uh, that will be one way. Uh, you swallow it very much like how you swallow a pill. 
And actually, you know, another way we're thinking of is to deploy it by using an endoscope. It can be faster. So the idea is you first, you know, insert your endoscope to reach the entrance, you know, uh, to those hard to reach location. Then you deploy the slime robot and then, you know, to further remotely actuate the slime robot to reach the uh, region of interest. So that's one way. Uh, second way is you just swallow uh, orally. Naturally, you know, we hope that it can be excreted, you know, from your body, uh, like what you do in daily life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to say, I've had more than once intestinal blockages, right? So let's say that I develop another intestinal blockage. I don't recommend it for anybody, but, you know, suppose that happens. Then I would swallow one of these things and you would, uh, the, the surgeon would run magnets around me and direct it to wherever the blockage was and then, you know, have it uh, push on that blockage or something. And then, a, you know, a day or two later, it would just, you know, well, it would just be excreted and that would be the end of it. It's a completely different approach, it seems to me, to the kind of nanobots that people talk about where they have little motors driving them or they have, you know, corkscrews or some method of propulsion like that. This thing has no ability to move itself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're totally right. I mean, there's no motor, you know, it has no fixed shape, but, you know, that's actually the one advantage because it can be deformed to any shape as you want, very much like a macro-scale amoeba, you know, this microorganism which you can see in the lake. And anyway, you know that amoeba also are very kind of uh, intelligent, small organisms. Sometimes it can even go through your nasal, you know, the channel to your brain. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, yeah, so again, it's because of high adaptability to the in, uh, to the different environment. I mean, our slime robot, you know, the the goal is to design with the high adaptability to different environment. I, I think I'd rather have one of these guys in my body than one of those, you know, long snaky type things that they work up through your mouth or some other body cavity, you know, and have it. <laughs> yeah, because you know, when you use traditional tools, it can easily, you know, uh, how to say that uh, distort your your lumen, and you will feel discomfort, very clear. So you need sedation or so how do yeah, they call sedation. it, you know, kind of drug, yeah, yeah so, so keep you calm, yeah, yeah. So Lee, can you say anything about what the material is? I mean, wh what are you using here for your slime robot? Yeah, sure. Uh, the material uh, for the slime robot is rather simple. Uh, it basically has three components. One is called uh, PVA, uh, polyvinyl alcohol, you know, and uh, the second part is uh, uh, borax. So basically, when you you know uh, mix uh, PVA solution with the borax, then uh, you know it will form this kind of gel-like material. You know, it will change from the watery-like solution to the gel. You know, when you mix these two you know solution together, uh, then you know in order to make it has response to the magnetic field. Then we put, you know, the uh, magnetic particle into it. Okay, so you put what, uh, just, you know, powdered iron or something like that into uh, it? It's not iron, you know, iron is not uh, strong enough. You know, it has a lower res response to the magnetic field. We use this uh, so-called neumbomium, uh, uh, you know, this uh, mag uh, magnet, you know. Yeah, the, yeah, they use, they use alloy. Yeah, kind of alloy, so which has a very strong response to the, to the magnet. But, you know, the problem that, you know, it has a higher toxicity. So that's the reason we also coat some kind of silicon dioxide, you know, uh, to make it inert, you know. So it's not just some kind of uh, neoborium uh, particles. So we actually do some coating to make sure that, you know, this material will not diffuse out inside your body. 
Okay. Can I just ask, I mean, are there any other possible applications to this? I mean, I would think that in a building, I mean, I don't know, you get blockages in copper pipes. Maybe you could use something like this for that too. Yeah, it's also a good uh, question. Yeah, so you, uh, we were actually uh, inspired, you know, from this movie, Venom. So I guess many of you watched that movie before, you know, this kind of uh, small black, you know, this soft gel-like stuff. We're also thinking of that. But, you know, when, one big challenge that, you know, when you think about magnetic actuation, it basically can only, uh, you know, interact with the material at a small distance. Right. So if you put the material very far away from the magnet, then, you know, the, the interaction force will be will be very small. So that will be a big challenge, you know, for for those kind of application you know, in a very large area. What movie were you talking about? Do you know Venom? Yeah. Did I see that one? I don't think I saw Venom. I, you know, it sounds scary. Uh, there was uh, so scary. <laughs> there was Fantastic Voyage a long, long time ago. Yeah. Yes. 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 Fantastic Voyage. You know. Yeah. You're right. I mean, uh, basically, you know, a, a crew of uh, scientists were, were injected in the in a blood vessel. Yeah, we know that. Yeah. But Venom, yeah. basically, you know, it shows some kind of alien creature. You know, I mean, it it, it looks like our slime robot. Uh, <laughs> It's just black colored and a gel-like material which can deform its body, you know, to random shape. And of course, it has intelligence, you know. Lee, uh, when do you expect that, uh, for example, surgeons will be using slime robots as an additional member of the surgical team? When, when do you see that happening? When? Oh, that's a very good question. So you know that we're all keen, you know, do some uh, clinical trials soon. Uh, when I talk with surgeon and, uh, you know, the main issue will be the safety. So you, so we care about the material safety. We care about, you know, the entire procedure, whether it's safe enough or not. And another thing that we're also thinking, you know, what kind of autonomy level can be achieved by using our robots? Because eventually we hope that, you know, the surgeon can be uh, relieved, you know, from kind of very tedious, you know, work. So uh, all the things actually we uh, need to be solved, but we hope that we can really realize it uh, with a patient in the next three to five years. Yeah, I, I can imagine that uh, somebody who uses that would have the kind of skill set that you would find for somebody who can also operate a drone, something like that. You know, you have a driver, you have a driver for your slime robot to help the surgeon. That's a very good question. So you need to give some training to the surgeon. So, so we hope that it won't be that difficult. And on the other hand, uh, we are thinking of uh, integrating, you know, the deep learning or AI technology, you know, uh, to realize some kind of autonomy. Well, finally, Lee, will these soft robots eventually displace surgeons? Will they have to go get a job at a car wash or something like that? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, very interesting question. So actually, uh, there are a lot of discussion, you know, uh, in the in the community, what should be the autonomy level of uh, medical robots. So I think currently the consensus is that you know uh, such kind of robot should not replace a surgeon, a medical doctor, but you know uh, it should do some kind of uh, more like uh, assistant job. But the current idea is we need to reach some kind of autonomy try to give some intelligence to the machine, but you know, it still needs to be under controlled by human, by the surgeon. Micro robots don't have good bedside manner. That's, uh, <laughs> that may be the problem. Well, Li Shang, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you so much, Seth. My great pleasure. 
Li Zheng is a professor in the Department of Surgery at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and his specialty is robotics. Well, you know, Molly, he's talking about, you know, things you could put in the body to remove blockages, but they're not self-propelled. You drive them from the outside with a magnet. I figure the next stage is to make them self-propelled so you can just put them in the body and they can go wherever they're needed. Well, Seth, let's come back to the role of science fiction in all of this because we have used the fantastic voyage as our through line in this episode. And I was interested to hear that Dr. Zhang knows Fantastic Voyage. He's seen that film, although his cultural touchstone seems to be more the film Venom (laughs) that includes an alien blob that he says is a little bit like his uh, robot. Yeah, well, I'm a little surprised that he didn't mention the blob itself, the film The Blob. (laughs) That wasn't in anybody's bodies. It would eat people, so I guess their bodies were in it. But on that note of science fiction influencing reality, Molly, what happens if we turn the microscope the other way? I mean, we've used Fantastic Voyage as kind of a leitmotif of our episode, but how realistic is it? Somebody has thought of that, biologist and B-movie fan, Michael LaBarbera. It turns out that being that tiny runs up against the laws of physics. The problem with being that size is that you are the size of a molecule and things like Brownian motion affect you where random attacks of molecules from different directions would bounce you around. The other thing that you really have to ask is how do you see when you're that size? If you're the size of the wavelength of light, what do your eyes receive when you're trying to get an an image? The other thing that I would really worry about, though, is white blood cells. Um, After all, being a foreign body inside another body, um, your body's defenses are going to come to the rescue. And the last thing I want to do is end up inside a vacuole. Well, elaborate a little bit on the kinds of things that look like they would work in Fantastic Voyage but really wouldn't. Uh, You mentioned vision wouldn't work. Yeah, vision wouldn't work, but other more subtle aspects of the biology wouldn't work. I mean, well, the first thing that you have to ask yourself is how did they shrink them? Um, Are they making all the atoms somehow smaller? smaller, it's possible there's a lot of empty space in an atom. But in that case, they would be the same weight as they were otherwise. And and that would be a little difficult if you have a 170-pound erythrocyte, red blood cell, um, it's going to go crashing through the the wall of that artery, and that's going to be the end of it. If what they're doing is taking atoms out, if they're, you know, say, having or, or reducing by a factor of 10 the number of atoms, that's okay. But when you start doing that to some biological molecules like DNA, for example, that can lead to some really significant problems. I mean, the other piece of this is just think about things like circulation. Um, Your heart pumps blood through arteries and then arterioles and capillaries and veins. And they're in a capillary, which is about seven microns across, big enough for one red blood cell to fit through. If they're seven microns across and their capillaries are presumably a thousand times smaller, one of the things that we know about fluids is that the resistance of flow through a vessel increases as the radius to the fourth power. That's that's pretty severe. That means that if you have the diameter of a vessel, the resistance increases by a factor of 16. You're asking these people to somehow pump blood through a vessel that's several thousand times smaller than normal capillaries. Um, I don't think they'd live very long. Now, Michael, Fantastic Voyage was certainly not the only movie that tried to think small. I mean, that's that's a recurrent theme in Hollywood. One movie that comes to mind and that I'm old enough to remember, the 1957 classic, 
the incredible shrinking man. Ah, yes. And and he takes on, it wasn't a locust, it was a spider. He tries to, you know, wrestle a, a knitting needle or something to use as a weapon. Uh, how, how'd that go? Well, it actually can go pretty well. I mean, if the, we aren't nearly as small as the folks in Fantastic Voyage in this case. Um, so he's a, a couple of inches high. Um, his muscles are going to be disproportionately strong. You've heard that old saw about uh, an ant can lift 50 times its body weight and you can't. This is a simple consequence of scaling. The ability of a muscle to produce force is a function of its cross-sectional area. As you shrink the objects down, masses or weights decrease faster than cross-sectional areas. So small animals, by definition, are disproportionately strong. Um, just think of your kids and think of the things that they used to lift relative to their body weight, as long as it's relative to the body weight. So, so this guy could lift the knitting needle, he could do battle with a spider, and indeed, um, he actually has some advantages because spiders have an open circulatory system. All he has to do is make a hole in the spider, and the spider is going to be, lose blood pressure and be unable to extend its legs. And this is a, an interesting aspect of the biology of arachnids, of spiders, is that they have no muscles to extend the legs. They use blood pressure. So if you puncture them, they're up the creek. All right. Well, Michael LaBarbera, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Michael LaBarbera is Emeritus Professor of Biology, Anatomy, and Geophysical Sciences at the University of Chicago. Well, this show is made possible thanks to the outsized abilities of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization spurring exploration of the cosmos at all scales. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Original music in the show by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that looks at the big medical possibilities of going small is called Fantastic Voyage. <laughs>